0: Okay. Hello.
1: Hello. Perfect. Hi. Welcome. Um,
0: You've got me. Welcome. I'm sorry. Is that Quinlan Posner?
1: Is that Carrie Ipema? Is this truly darkly Green. <laughs> that was pretty good.
0: <laughs> that wasn't bad. Um, we could do better, but again, we're still recorded remotely, folks. Don't beat yourself we're still, up. We're still far away, but right now time zone, we're getting closer.
1: You know what I mean? We're in each other's hearts. That's for sure.
0: That's 100% a fact. I've been looking at pictures of Koa on your Instagram, which by the way, this is something that I joked a lot about in high school and it's important because it's right here. So hold on. You're good. I'm pulling it off. Okay. So when they sell boxes to people, Mm -hmm. Do you know that they have warnings about babies in boxes?
1: Like, don't let your baby climb in this box?
0: So, since high school, I thought these were super-duper fucking funny, and I'm balancing an iPad on, but this is the...
1: Oh my god, that picture. You have to take a picture that we're posting that on our Instagram. That's hysterical.
0: This is my favorite thing in the whole wide world. Who's putting I, their
1: baby in that box? That's well, so good. We're, like It looks like they went to the store and they were like, what I need <laughs> is a box for a baby. Do you have that? I need a box to keep my baby in at night.
0: There were really... And I remember in high school, I would be... I, I was a part of a dance company and... The only reason I've ever found comedy is because I wasn't nearly as good as my peers. and But if I got them to laugh, I felt like legit... We've talked about this before, mm-hmm. about how it's that we weren't as good as people. So if we were funny enough, they would accept us as their own and think we're special and fun. That's just the truth. Um, but I would do PSAs and be like, do you worry about your baby in a box? Well, please, don't put babies in boxes. And I remember really just hamming it up for folks about babies in boxes because these are on every fucking See, box. and I don't think
1: they're a good idea because, frankly, um, I've never considered putting a baby in a box till I saw that picture. And then I was like, that looks so cute. A baby in a box. That looks cute. Like what? a baby in a Tupperware, I- especially where you could see through the Tupperware and wave to the baby.
0: How fun, right? But I mean, if only they didn't suffocate and die. I, I think what's well, happening. Do you have is to put the is... lid
1: all the way on? I mean, I'm not going to be an idiot.
0: Well, I'm just trying to throw a Tupperware happening... baby
1: party. <laughs> I got to see a scan of the baby this week. Um, it's called a nuchal translucency scan where they, they're they basically doing it to measure the baby's body and make sure it's the right size for how far along you are, uh, including yeah. they do a measurement of the – it's really crazy, actually, the baby – between weeks 11 and 13, their skin is still translucent enough that they can measure the liquid in their neck, which they like to do because they if there's too much of it, it points to, like, perhaps downs or something. So – but if you pass, like, that window of time, the skin is too thick then for them to actually measure the fluid. They can't see into the baby's neck anymore.
0: Wow.
1: Um. So I went and had that done uh, – at Methodist in Brooklyn. And it was cool. It was cool to go to the hospital, actually. I was totally freaked at the beginning. But like, since people aren't taking the subway, and we don't have a car, I had to walk an hour to the hospital. And that, first of all, was pretty rad, because it was like a walk through the park, literally. And then to be in a hospital where you get to say thank you to all these people face to face was sort of emotional. Um, just to, oh, you know, I get in an that. elevator with like two nurses and be like, thank you so much. You know, like and thank people in person for uh, being on the front lines for saving right now. Lives. Yeah. And, you know, they take for your temperature before you go into the hospital and they give you hand sanitizer and they give you a form that says you're, you are uh, you appear healthy enough to be there. Um, but I also got a blood test while I was there that it's a genetic blood test so right they're gonna get back to me within a week of that to tell me if it looks like there's anything funky like extra chromosomes or anything right um and they also tell you the gender when they get back to you because they can tell from the genetic blood test
0: whoa are you so you guys are finding out i would never wait i can't i'm so i would you would wait I for sure wait. I I've I love a surprise.
1: Yeah, I think I would wait. See, to me, the day that you give birth is so um, strange and unsure, and there's so many like, am I gonna have to go in for a C-section? Is like, what's gonna? There's so many unknowns that day that going mm-hmm. into it with any extra unknowns is just unappealing to me. Um, <laughs> I just am like. Whatever I can be prepared for, I want to be prepared for. So tell me what's up.
0: I mean, I think that's fair. I don't know. I think... I want to be able to know. tell Koa, too. I want to be able to... I mean, I think... I mean, I think every poison is different, right? Like, no one... No, Carrie,
1: everyone's the same.
0: Haven't you heard? We're all the same. Didn't you hear? It's all Greek to me. Didn't you hear? Hear the good news. We're all the same. Um, This... I wonder, I mean, listen, I fully expect myself to change my mind. Like, anything I say in this closet right now is the truth at this day, at this hour, at this time. I understand I can change my opinions here and thereafter. However, I feel like if you have, I don't want to start gendering the baby from the beginning, I guess. That's why you
1: lied to all your friends about which gender it is
0: and see how they treat the baby.
1: And you do that through uh the baby's first year, I believe. That's the tradition. <laughs> Actually, it's funny. We never cut Koa's hair, as you know, and so it's yeah. luxurious.
0: Well, cuz he doesn't like it. You you just like I don't I'm not putting my baby through pain. Well, There's he also no he
1: doesn't I don't know. I think he looks like a cool surfer. So uh, anyway, I've left <laughs> it alone for the most part. And as a result, <laughs> ever since he was little, and we dress him a little bit effeminately, which is to just say... Um, you dress
0: him in clothes that you have. It's not effeminate. Oh. You just like, well, you have
1: a, clothes. A lot of his hand-me-downs are female clothing. We, I think it's a little too far to put him in a dress without him wanting to be in one or being old enough to vocalize. That's what he wants. But certainly he'll put on like a pink pair of corduroys and like a shirt with a purple sparkle (laughs) cat on it because he, you know, like we have that and he likes it and it's fine. Because
0: he's two. But as
1: a result, every time we go to a playground or anything, people are always like, your daughter, your daughter, your daughter. And I never correct them. Mm. Hopefully none of those people will end up being close to me in the future or friends because that will be a conversation we will then need to have eventually. (laughs) But if other parents are talking to Koa like he's a girl or to me like he's a girl, I don't correct it because I'm sort of fascinated by it. And they've done studies where when people were left in rooms alone with babies and thought it was a specific type of gender, they spoke to it in a specifically gendered way. And so I think uh, it's kind of cool that right now people don't know if Ko is a boy or a girl. And so he gets um, the benefit of having both kinds of gendered feedback. Yeah. So, yeah, we're talking to him about there's a baby coming. uh, So it'd be nice to say if it's going to be a sister or brother, and maybe that's antiquated at this point for me to say, but uh, I want to have more words to talk to him about it
0: right now and, you knew Koa was a boy, I remember, because there was a distinct conversation about you growing a penis inside you, which is really trippy. Mm. But, yeah, I mean, I don't think it's... I guess what I'm saying is my preference is I think I'd want to be surprised. And I think the gender conversation is just further proof for me to like, you know, not proof, but further justification. But I think the really the element of surprise for me is the most exciting.
1: If I could go in and they would tell me what my kid's going to be when they're a grown up and where they're going to go to school, I'd be like, yeah, I guess I want to know. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I'm not good with surprises. It's how I
0: feel about scary movies. I The only way I will watch a scary movie is if I go and I read spoilers and then I can watch it. I can tolerate knowing what happens. I mean, I've definitely done that without when I watched Hereditary. Did not know what was coming. Did not see. I That was scary. So but scary. It was so scary. But I don't watch enough scary movies to know where that falls on the fear factor. Like, I think one of the scariest movies is Jaws. Truly, <laughs> darkly, creepily, Jaws scares the shit of me. In fact, ever since I did my shark story, Facebook, has been bombarding me with shark information, <laughs> which again, I'm fascinated by. So I click, it is clickbait to me, hence uh, emphasis click on the bait, word bait. Shark bait. Like, clickbait. Clickbait, sharpbait, ooh ha ha. And they, <laughs> they, no joke, I just saw one in Australia where there were like two 14 foot great white sharks and there was this drone. There were, okay. There were two great white sharks, there was a drone, and these surfers were surfing in Australia, and they couldn't see the shark underneath them, but you saw the shark get right fucking underneath the <gasps> surfer. And 14 and the drone... feet is like three Judy Garlands. <laughs> it's like three Judy Garlands. And they're like, and they the drone goes, get out of the water. And so they fucking swam, swam, swam quick. Another one was a woman was kayaking, and a drone saw a hammerhead shark come right up to her so fucking scary so fucking scary
1: wow and one of them
0: scary there's this iron bound is a name of a shark that they tagged for to see their migration patterns it's an 899 pound 14 foot great white shark and they found it like around 100 yards off the new jersey coast recently holy shit So, like, we're not alone. These gray-white sharks are in New York. They're saying pandemic. I don't give a fuck. They're probably in space,
1: too. Do you think they're in space? Yeah, that's probably who we're talking to when we get those weird radio signals. Sharks. (laughs) (laughs) Um, (laughs) Speaking of being scared of things, I'm about to scare the shit out of you with this story. Uh, Like, in uh, a way where, honestly, I have never done a story to date where I have all I wrote at the top of this in my notes is
0: trigger warning
1: where I'm like I need to give a trigger warning before doing this story it's that scary
0: it's that dark we have a show called truly darkly creepily and this is the story that's like doing you in this is it well yeah it's really scary and it's uh, holy shit. it's scary and it's also
1: um some of the details I'm going to go into are a little bit graphic. So I I just did want to say at the beginning, if okay. you have found this podcast in the past to be just scary enough, but maybe you didn't want it any scarier, this might be a story for you to skip and then come in halfway through the episode and listen to Carrie. Um, <laughs> so I got my, my information from Wikipedia, all that's interesting, biography.com, Murderpedia specifically um, Murderpedia had a bunch of articles and the one that was so great was um, Grizzly Gainesville by Fiona Shaw no Fiona Shaw listen I'm I watching mean, I watched Killing Eve last night Fiona Steele and the Herald Tribune this is the story of the Gainesville Ripper do you know anything about that
0: Um, what I know about Gainesville oh my god my foot's asleep hold on okay What I know about Gainesville, Florida, is that I got hazed there. They also have a very good vegan soul food place that I think has since closed down, unfortunately. Okay. Your, yeah, your knowledge
1: sounds pretty limited when it comes to Gainesville in general. So um, (laughs) we're actually going to start our story at Clementa Street in Sarasota on August 5th, 1990. We're uh, with 30-year-old Janet Frake, who shares a two-bedroom house with two cats. Um, It's her Netflix and chill night. So she goes and rents a movie because it's the 90s. And she picks up a six-pack of Keystone gold beer. Love her style. She heads home. Now, she's been home for about two hours when a man slips in through her bedroom window and charges into her bathroom. He's wearing leather gloves a black ski mask and has a huge hunting knife. He bounds and gags her with duct tape. And she says, at first, I didn't think it was real. I thought somebody was playing a joke on me. But there was so much rage in him, so much anger. I've read there is no right way to deal with rape, that you can take self-defense classes and try to defend yourself, or you can try to be smarter. Well, there was no way I was going to beat this guy. I was tied up, and he locked all the doors, so I decided to stay as calm as I could. Uh, Can
0: I just say, every time you tell a story and you give feedback from the victim as you're communicating it I breathe a sigh of relief I'm always like okay they're alive yeah (laughs) Mm -hmm. this person said I'm like oh my god (laughs) I get like very how do you know she
1: how do you know she didn't have a journal with her as this was happening and she was journaling and then she died and we have (laughs) the journal you
0: said you did say she was bound so I feel like unless she's very how do you know
1: she doesn't have a podcast and she was live streaming As this was happening.
0: That's so dork-sided. I don't like that I'm just trying to...
1: No, I'm just trying to... I want you to keep an open mind. That's all I'm saying. (laughs) So the man does end up raping her. And he says to her that he plans to do it all night. So she takes this crazy tact with him. And you know what she says to him? I have some cold beer in the fridge. Do you want to take a break (laughs) from raping me to have a beer? And something totally shifts in him where he Mm. goes from totally scary, crazy cuckoo to being really calm and relaxed around her and stops being so combative. After this, he's like, why don't you go take a shower? She goes and takes a shower and grabs a towel to wipe herself to hopefully capture some of the DNA samples, and then she throws the towel behind the toilet to hide it and takes the shower. She also goes and gets him a beer and pours it in a glass, hoping,
0: again, that he'll leave (gasps) fingerprints or something. This is so
1: smart of her.
0: I just, like, I'm always so impressed when people do that, when she had the wherewithal to be like, I need to help my future self find this person.
1: Right. Ugh. He is super relaxed around her at this point and sets his knife in her lap, which I think was, like, a power play move of testing her. And she just says, Mm -hmm. take it away. Then he asks her, can he take off his mask? And she's like, no, you can't take off your mask. And because she's like, if once I see his face, he might then realize there's more motivation to kill me. So she's like, no, you can't take oh. off your mask. And he says to her, you would really like to date me if the circumstances were different. And he starts to talk to her about how hard his childhood was. And her tactic, again, is what she begins to do is kind of commiserate with him and say, oh, my childhood was really hard, too. And she starts lying and making up, like, bullshit stories about a hard childhood. She says, Mm -hmm. I couldn't have asked for a better family and friends that I had growing up. And I'm telling you, I should have gotten an Oscar for that night. Because she's just trying to bond with him to neutralize the situation. At about 1.30 in the morning, she's exhausted. And she suggests to him that maybe it's time to leave And he says to her, would you do me a favor? Would you give me 10 minutes before you call the cops? And she's like, sure, no problem. And he leaves and he's never seen again. She does call the cops, but to no avail, really. They can't track him down. She does spend the next several months after her attack sleeping under her dining room table with a kitchen knife. No. So this fucked Ugh. with her, obviously. I don't know how it wouldn't. Okay, we're going to jump to Gainesville now. And wait,
0: where, where where did this happen? Sarasota. Sarasota. You said Sarasota.
1: So we're going to jump to Gainesville. It's 4 p.m. on Sunday, August 26, 1990. Officer Ray Barber's shift is ending, and he gets a call on the radio that there's a mu- uh, loud music complaint. Then he gets another call that, to assist a citizen. And he says those are two very routine calls. um, And he's on his way home. So he's like, whatever, I'll just go by. He drives into a courtyard at the Williamsburg Village Apartments and a maintenance man that works there meets him and says, the issue is I have a couple of anxious parents here that they want me to open their daughter's apartment because they can't get her to answer the door but I don't want to open the apartment because I don't really know the legal risks of if she is home and I'm forcing an entry to the home so I wanted to call the cops to make sure you were present during it mm-hmm. so Barber, the cop talks to Frank and Patricia Powell and they're like our daughter lives here Christina she's 17 years old she hasn't been seen since Friday and it's Sunday And she knew that we were driving to see her and that we were driving all the way from Jacksonville that morning. So it's weird she's not answering the door. Also, her car is here. We see her car. We called her roommate's parents to see what was up. And she lives with this girl, Sonia Larson, who's also 17. And her parents said that Sonia was supposed to call home that day and didn't. So we have these two girls that we're supposed to be heard from that aren't being heard from. They Open the door to the apartment, and what they come to discover is that both women have been murdered. A man had broken in and found Powell asleep on the downstairs couch. He stood over her for a minute, but he doesn't wake her up, and instead, he goes to the upstairs bedroom where he sees Larson also sleeping. He murders Larson, he tapes her mouth shut and stabs her to death, and she dies while sort of fending him off. He then goes back downstairs, tapes Powell's mouth shut, bounds her wrists behind her back, threatens her with a knife, cuts all her clothes off, and rapes her. Then he puts her face down on the floor, and he stabs her five times in the back. After this horrible, gruesome scene unfolds, he then poses their bodies in sexually (gasps) provocative positions. Not only that, but Powell... Uh, Christina Powell's nipples were cut off after she died.
0: Oh, my God. Oh, that's awful.
1: He takes a shower at their apartment, which I I find details like that disturbing because it points to a lack of panic in the person committing the crime and a sort Mm of um, arrogance. I have the time to now... Take a shower in your home while these bodies are here.
0: Well, also it for me, it feels like such a I mean, it's just the invasion of privacy that this person felt comfortable enough in this home that was not his Mm -hmm. after he killed in his victims. It's just like. The per that the person made themselves even comfortable is just nauseating to me.
1: <sighs>
0: so Barbara calls for
1: backup they arrive obviously the media fucking arrives and all the police are sort of saying publicly is yes two women were murdered sometime between 11: 30 p.m on August 23rd and 4 pm on August 26th. so huge fucking window. Before the papers can print anything, there's just gossip. Um, Because the apartment complex, people are talking to each other. They're making phone calls to people. And the public comes to know that, like, these girls were freshmen. One was from Palm Beach, the other from Jacksonville. And everyone's sort of wondering how in this apartment complex this happened without anyone knowing or sort of hearing anything. And so one neighbor comes forward and says, well, actually, I did hear someone showering. And playing loud music early on Friday morning. And they were playing George Michael's Faith. So that was likely the killer. Ugh. No. And someone else said they heard a a loud banging sound but thought maybe it was just somebody hanging pictures on the wall. But that could have been some of the tussle. So now the girls have a third roommate, Elsa, who arrives home while this is unfolding So they're like, oh, fuck, get her out of here. They like escort her away to the Alachua County Crisis Center. And then once inside, they're like, so your roommates got murdered. And she almost faints from the shock. So there's fear and panic starting to spread. It starts at this apartment complex and starts to leak out into the community. And beyond that, the police have not totally finished packing up and sealing the area and dealing with the scene of the crime when they get called to the scene of another terrible crime. No. Yes. So dispatch calls Barber that's still there and the rest of the force and says, can you drop by this other young girl's place, Krista Lee Hoyt's apartment, just in case? Because now I think everyone's antennas are up differently. And 18-year-old Krista had worked a midnight shift as a records clerk at the Alachua County Sheriff's office and she hadn't arrived for work and it was now 12:30 in uh 12:30 in the morning so she i guess she's like half an hour late to work and they're like whatever let's go check on this girl barber goes with deputy i didn't write down his first name for some reason but deputy ohara and barber go to Krista's house and they knock on the door. She doesn't answer. So they're sort of relieved because they're like, maybe she already left for work. But then they see her car. So they knock again. The door's locked. But hearing them banging on the door, the manager comes out and is like, I can take you to the back of the apartment The manager, as he's taking them to the back of the apartment, sees that the gate that goes to the back is damaged and the chain link fence is down, like cut down. And he's like, oh, fuck. That's not normal. So O'Hara and Barbara are like, you know what? Why don't you wait at the front for us? Like, don't come back here with us because they don't know if they're going to catch killer or something still there so they yeah they're getting him out of the way they go to the back and it's a sliding glass door and it's locked but they notice that the shades in the apartment don't reach fully the ground so they get down on the ground with flashlights and start looking and they can see that it looks like there is a naked person sitting on the edge of a bed and there's blood at the person's feet But then they notice upon closer inspection, it's a female body and it's missing a head.
0: (gasps) Oh, no, I did not. I was not prepared. I was not prepared. I gave you a trigger warning. I know. Uh, Okay, I'm back.
1: All right. So they get the fuck up and they go in. They're like, we're going in.
0: Quinn, I need to know. I need to know. Do we do we find out who it is or is this unsolved?
1: we find out who it is.
0: Oh, thank God. Okay. okay. Good. Okay. Thank you. Yeah. I don't I just I couldn't
1: do this story I don't think if you don't. I yeah, I need it's to know that much. this person is
0: burning in hell. So, they move toward the
1: bathroom and they can hear the shower dripping, but there's no one there. But it's like someone no. might have just been in the shower. There's also blood stains in the shower. Then they walk out of the bathroom and go into the bedroom where they had seen the body. And they see that the head is staring at them. It's propped up on a bookshelf across from the body. And the body is sitting at the edge of the bed. Once again, the nipples have been taken off and are next to the body on the bed. And the body has been sliced from breastbone to pubic bone.
0: No, no, oh, no. I have shivers. No, no, I don't like it.
1: It's not good.
0: Oh, everybody, let's just take a deep breath, everyone. Take a recovery breath, folks. Okay. What
1: had happened is the killer had pried open the sliding glass door with a knife and a screwdriver when Krista was not home and he walked into the living room. And at 11 a.m. she got home and he surprised her from behind, put her in a chokehold, taped her mouth shut and bound her wrists together and then led her into the bedroom and cut off her clothes and raped her. Just like in the Christina Powell murder, he then pushes her face down and stabs her in the back, which kills her. After she's dead, he does all the weird shit to the body, including decapitating it. So it's pretty clear because of that, that the three murders that happened are linked. Also, at both scenes, underwear is missing, they discover. And it seemed like a knife that had a four to six inch blade was used at both scenes on all three girls. And duct tape was always what was used for the restraint, although it was taken with the killer. Did these girls all look similarly? They were young college girls. I think they were all brunette. And yeah, 17, 18. So sure. Also, there was always body parts missing or a little bit of skin missing like he was definitely taking trophies with him. Person... So the paper is publishing this oh. but they're they're omitting a lot of what I just told you, uh the more gruesome stuff and but they're selling out like fucking hotcakes. Everybody in town wants to know what the fuck's going on, so everyone's buying the papers and the students in this community are losing their goddamn minds.
0: Of course they are
1: because well at first it was like the two girls that were killed that lived together went to the same school, University of Florida, but Krista was a sophomore at Santa Fe Community College. So it it felt like anyone could be next. There wasn't I think they wanted to see more in common with the three victims because they wanted a, a reason to feel to safe. It down. Yeah. To go I, I don't go to that school, so I'm okay.
0: People um, do that when there's a horrible tragedy like that. People will Add reasonings to things just to distance themselves from it. We've talked about it, and also college campuses have this false sense of security. Have we? We talked about it in any time we've done a you know a campus murder like this or a campus. Well, the security situation. the kids situation
1: was a hundred percent out the fucking window. Mm-hmm. They what they end up doing is they hold a press conference that Monday. Um, the. Alachua County Sheriff's Office and the Gainesville Police Department right away are like, we got to combine. Let's do a combined task force. They hold this press conference and the police are like trying to reassure the public. But the facts are the facts, which are these three women were murdered in their homes and no one knows fucking why. And they haven't found the person that did it. So as a result, the Gainesville phone lines are jammed with students calling home. To tell their parents that they're okay with parents trying to reach their kids and make sure they're okay. And Mm. the kids start um, basically having these really big slumber parties where people are sleeping with 10, 12 people in the same tiny apartments because safety in numbers and no one wants to be alone and no one even feels safe with just a roommate around anymore. Yeah. People are, you know, trying to get a lot of guys, I think. All yeah. your guy, you were calling all your guy friends, and you were being like, "Do you want to sleep over? I don't like you like that, but you can sleep over. Please come over. Um, please
0: just please be here.
1: <laughs> please come over. Don't make a move, you, <laughs> but please <laughs> come over. But be here. So no one's walking alone, obviously, day yeah. or night. People are stranger danger. Like you cannot fucking believe if somebody looked at you funny, you were like, "That guy's the
0: killer. I'm running.
1: Yeah." So, the next day after this press conference on Monday is Tuesday, August 28th, and two more bodies are found. No. Not only that, but this time one of them is male. No. So, it throws a whole nother oh, it, you know what?
0: It really could happen. Now you have to turn
1: to all your male friends and be like, go back to your place. (laughs) (laughs) I don't want to hook up with you, and I don't even want you to sleep on my floor anymore. Beat it, um, because it's not women he's going after anymore. So no one felt secure. The victims were Tracy Inez Pauls and Manuel R Tabuada. Both are 23 this time, and these two have been friends since high school, and they share a two bedroom at the Gatorwood Apartments. One of Manny's friends, Tommy Carroll, came to their place at 7 a.m. to check in on them because a mutual friend had called him and said. I'm worried I can't get a hold of them. Can you go check on them? No one answers. He gets a maintenance guy to open the apartment. And I just have to say at this point, these poor fucking maintenance guys and managers of apartment complexes. Because every time they were involved and they did not sign up for this. So Uh. they open the door. This is kind of crazy. They open the door to the apartment and Tracy's right there in the hallway. Naked, bloody. There's Whoa. a towel under her hips. Her hair's wet. And sitting on the floor pretty close to her is a dark colored bag, like duffel bag. And they're like, fuck, and they slam the door. Like they open it and see that and they're like, oh, shit, and they slam the door and lock it. And they go call the police and they come back five minutes later. When they come back five fucking minutes later.
0: The, the door gone. is
1: unlocked and the bag is gone. <gasps> How fucking oh, fuck. nuts is that? Does that destroy you? I mean, can you imagine? The killer okay. was fucking. The f-
0: killer was fucking there. There. The killer was there and their reaction probably saved their lives. Well, not only that,
1: but these bodies were not mutilated. Right. Probably because he it seems he was there's a pattern where he rapes and kills, and only uh, post mortem does he then feel like he has the time to fuck with the body um, and do weird shit. And he almost got caught, so he didn't get to do his weird shit on the body.
0: So there's so they know this killer has a duffel, right? They also it. know
1: again he, he had pried open uh, a glass lighting door with the same tools used previously at Krista's he'd found Manuel asleep in one of the bedrooms and had a struggle but with him maybe he didn't expect there to be a guy there I don't know but he ends up killing Manuel Tracy hears the kerfuffle and fucking runs down the hall and goes into the bedroom sees what's going on and is like fuck runs back to her room and tries to barricade the door but the killer smashes the door in anyway and does his use cuts off her clothing rapes her and stabs her three times in the back they said it looked like he was gonna like starting to pose her body like doing initial things but it was interrupted that's what it looks like oh quinn i hate this story so now we're at five murders and the police are getting about a billion phone calls a minute with everybody saying any shit they've seen that's weird right. and funky so obviously now they have to wade through, through all the that shit end. which it's yeah. hard It's hard for me to know what to make of that in the sense that it is a situation where if you see something say something it absolutely is there's too many times when people don't say a thing and it's what could help someone it's else but kind of, in this yeah. case everyone that ever saw anything is saying something
0: so, well, I mean, I'm a big fan of law and Order SVU and they're always like, oh God, a tip line. Now the people are going to come out and drove Like that's a uh, common practice. I don't think, I think what's crazy is, is there's, there's absolutely no, they have no leads at this point. Right. Cause there's, there, well, there's, so what is, happens is they're getting
1: these phone calls and one name in particular sort of stands out to them because they get more than one call about the same name where they're like it's a few people calling and the name is Edward Lewis Humphrey he lived at the same apartments as Tracy and Manuel and the manager of that apartment complex is the person that calls and says I actually had to ask this guy to leave because he had a big fight with his roommates and when I talked to his roommates they were like this guy is super fucking weird and he walks in asleep and when the manager goes to tell the guy like Edward, you got to beat it. The guy throws a chair at him. So he seems unhinged, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and he had lived on the opposite um, apartment block. And he would go into people's apartments uninvited and then like people got freaked out and locked the doors and he would peep at them through their curtains so a lot of people oh. are like there's this weirdo there's this weirdo and it's Edward over and over again and then when they start to look into him he kind of has a violent track record where once he tried to get into like a fraternity party and pulled a knife when they told him to leave um, also an trigger warning here this is really bad behavior get ready He punched his grandma. (laughs) Can you imagine? Who is this guy? Who punches a grandma?
0: Who the fuck dares punch their fucking grandma?
1: Edward, I don't know your grandma, but I don't think she deserved to get punched. I don't like you.
0: I don't like you, Edward.
1: No, no, nothing to like. So he's questioned extensively for 24 hours. The media right away has headlines him as the number one suspect, and the police don't say anything to refute
0: that. Um, so they end up getting. Well, the police over- are probably thrilled that people are thinking that they're doing their job safe. correctly and feeling safe. Like they're managing the people's expectations. So they get a warrant
1: to search his shit like his apartment his car they don't find anything um and they tail as old as time they put a ton of their energy into this guy because ten- they're basically that he's not it right he's no, not no he's not it and here's the thing i think they're <sighs> it's like you know the secret yeah it's like they're trying to the secret This, where they're like, if we believe that this guy did it hard enough and we put all our energy into he did it, then maybe he'll have done it. And that doesn't you can't the secret um, solve a crime.
0: Crime. Murder. It doesn't work. Do you think the secret is a part of the police like training? Yes. I think that they're
1: like, if you can't find who the killer is, manifest it. Manifest Manifest it, it. baby.
0: Manifest destiny, honey. Yes.
1: Manifest murder manifest murder
0: manifest crime solving so do you want to
1: know who did it
0: absolutely i want this guy to rot in hell
1: okay danny rolling is the guy that did it okay fuck danny let me tell you you about danny claudia married james rolling in 1953 when she was 19 and they get married in georgia and she gets pregnant with little danny about two weeks into the marriage um while she's pregnant, her husband, James, is, you know, just beating her every now and then because that's his thing. And she leaves him because she's not a fan and moves into her parents' home in Shrevesport. But he fucking follows her there and convinces her to stay with him. Oh. Um, he gets a job as a police officer, which makes me feel really safe. Fuck. Yeah. Danny Rollins was born in May 1954. And... James just wants a super honest relationship with his son, like from the beginning. So he's really good about telling Danny right away, you're unwanted and I don't love you and stuff like that. And he basically manages holding off from beating Danny until the ripe age of about six months or so when Danny (gasps) starts crawling. And he would do the same kind of crawl Koa did where instead of traditional crawling, he would like pull himself along his butt with one leg. Have you ever seen babies that do that? Well, for some reason, that, like, really rubs James the wrong way. He doesn't think it's cute. So he starts grabbing him by the leg and pulling him across floors so hard that the kid is, like, bouncing down the hall. So we don't like James. When Danny's one and he's learning how to eat and stuff, his dad beats him for not chewing properly. Like, anything that sets James off, which... You know, is, is, well, babies set you off all the time. They don't do anything right that they're babies. So he's way, like, you're he, doing that wrong again. I'm going to beat is this James little baby. Police,
0: is James a police officer this entire time? Yeah. You know, I. I uh, Are you surprised by that? I feel like that's
1: somehow that made perfect sense to me.
0: You know just because it makes perfect sense it doesn't make me any less sad and angry at the state of the world okay i'll give you that
1: he likes to lord his power and his control over other people so it makes perfect sense to me if he needs to do weird flex with a one-year-old like i'm just what not is he gonna surprised. do with it? The- um so claudia of course is continuing to get beat up as well and she's always trying to leave and it's always not sticking she ends up actually having another child by James a little boy named Kevin as you can imagine in this household it's not really a case of the more the merrier so it's uh, not a happy home Danny actually when he is little like third grade age he starts missing school a lot because he's always sick and so he ends up failing third grade which launches his dad into even more uh, violence it's just a horrible home to be in. Claudia ends up having a nervous breakdown. Uh, Two years pass after that. And at age 11, Danny Rowling picks up music to sort of cope with his situation at home. He starts playing the guitar. He starts singing hymns. But then his mom ends up slitting her wrists. She doesn't die, but she gets committed to a hospital. And so hymns are no longer really like cutting it as far as a coping mechanism so that's about when danny turns to drugs and alcohol to cope and again he's 11 years old at
0: 11
1: yeah 11 and he's like i'm just gonna get drunk and you cannot blame him for that
0: it's hard i don't want to feel bad for danny right now because he's a monster Uh I hate it. Well, this is is a little bit the
1: making of a monster. So as a teen, he is arrested several times for robberies, and at fourteen he gets caught spying on one of the girls that lives in the neighborhood. So he's behavioral stuff left and right, and he also just wants to get the fuck away from his family. So he ends up enlisting. And the Mm -hmm. Navy's like, pass. So he joins the (laughs) Air Force. Um and he gets discharged from the Air Force because of drug use. I read that he took acid more than a hundred times. And I got to say, dear readers, I'm pretty certain that you're supposed to stop after like 82 or 83. We all know that. So he's, yeah, <laughs> right. his brain is getting scooped. Um, like he has scoopity scoops in his brain. Well, so he actually manages after his Discharge from the Air Force, he actually manages to get married to a woman who I read. She I couldn't find her last name, which is to say, I found two different ones. But I can tell you that her first name is O'Mather. Isn't that a crazy first name, O'Mather?
0: Like, is it apostrophe? It is. Isn't that wild? Oh, that's a wild name. But you're an like, idea oh. for a baby name, perhaps for you. Just an idea, uh, O'Mather. Well,
1: so you kind of are like, oh, he got married. Is there hope? There's not. Uh, He keeps threatening to kill her. So she fucking bids him farewell after four years because that kind of shit's cute at the beginning. But after four years, it's like, try a new approach. Enough. So he's you know 23. What? I'm just,
0: like, really fascinated. Is this Nate, like, is this guy nature v. Nurture? Like, that's how I'm, like, it feels like a lot of nurture fucked. But maybe I, his dad was a psycho. He's, I, ugh. Gotta be a combo pack.
1: Gotta be a combos.
0: (laughs) Gotta be a combo. Gotta be a that pretzel cheddar combo, you
1: know? I do. So he's twenty three when O'Mather leaves him. They also they have a daughter. O'Mather and the daughter beat it. Then later that same year he accidentally kills someone in a car accident. So he's having a really bad year.
0: Sounds like a bad life, but yeah.
1: Yes, it's a really bad life. And, you know, like all children um, and young men, Danny grows into an adult. That's how that goes. And and he's doing whatever, petty crime, theft, all through the 70s, 80s. He's in and out of the prison system. Louisiana, Mississippi, Georgia, Alabama. So, you know, he's getting to travel, which sounds nice. Um, at one point... <laughs> He works as a waiter at Poncho's resta- restaurant in Shreveport, and he loses his job there. And that pisses him off. And let's just say that right after that happened, the bodies of three victims were found in a Shreveport home. A 24-year-old, Julie Grissom, her father, Tom, and her nephew, 8-year-old Sean are all found dead. And Julia's corpse was left in a sexual position. And she was also stabbed to death and had bite marks on her body. And in May of 1990, he attempts to kill his father during a family argument. His father does live through the ordeal, but loses an eye and an ear. Danny Rowling is like, after that, time for a change. So, he goes through somebody's shit at their house that he breaks into and steals an identity with some stolen papers. Shred your shit people, shred your shit. He takes a bus to Sarasota, Florida, and he starts a new life as Michael Kennedy Jr. What a name. What he's a, a name. Kennedy.
0: He's a Kennedy, baby?
1: Good choice, Roland. Good choice. In July of 1990, he's in Sarasota and he's there a couple months then he goes to Gainesville. So in August, he sort of sets up like camp, literally, like I think he's living in a in the woods at like a campsite, essentially. And from there, he is committing murders. And he also he robs the First Union National Bank in Gainesville. And after doing that, he meets up with a drug dealer, Tony Danzi amazing name
0: wait a minute i know i know it's so good there's a tony danzy hold me Not a dance to up, tony folks.
1: danzy they start to head back to his camp and they run into the cops and tony danzy is pretty chill about it but obviously danny Rowling cannot be chill and runs so the cops are like what's this guy running about they go to his campsite they take all his shit and store it, and they find a thing of money, but it's all uh ink stained from the bank robbery. You know what I mean? Okay. You know when you Busted. steal a bunch of money and it like they put the ink in it. They have bomb an in ink it? pack. Yeah. yeah. So they find a bunch of ink stained bills from the bank robbery. But now they're looking for him because they're like, that's the guy that robbed the bank. The next day, Rolling still needs his drugs, so he meets up with Tony Danzy, and he and Danzy's like here's the thing, I'm a tattle on you. So Rollins is like, oh, okay. And he needs to beat it. So I mean, you know, his motto, no car, no money, no problem. He steals a car. He burgles a few houses, leaves his like fucking prints all over these houses. He's then almost caught when he tries to rob a convenience store, but he runs into the woods and he steals a different car to switch cars. And then he goes to rob a Winn-Dixie supermarket. But he goes to rob it peak shopping hours on a Saturday afternoon. Bananas. So a bookkeeper had left work there and was coming back to work. And there's a full store that he's robbing. So when she gets to the door of the store, somebody just kind of turns to her and tells her what's up. So she just leaves and calls the police. Because he can't keep track of everybody in the fucking supermarket. So now picture like a very cinematic high-speed chase situation where the cops arrive, but Rowling doesn't know. He leaves the market and he gets into the car, but the police pull out. So but picture like he peels out and he's like driving and they follow him and he's like flustered he wasn't expecting to be followed and he crashes the car and he jumps out of the car and he starts running on foot through the town and he goes into it's like very cartoon he goes into an office building and they run after and he tries to go out the back door of the office building but they're waiting mm-hmm. for him out the back door too and they're like
0: you're under arrest
1: okay okay i'm imagining
0: so, it yes
1: now danny's in a prison so for the bank robbery to be clear that's what he's in prison for currently gotcha welcome to new year's day january 1 1991 it is unclear what danny's new year's resolution was but that day he does rip a toilet from its mounting and throw it across the day room Ugh. Danny. So this and other cuckoo behavior leads his defense attorney to ask for some psychological tests. Meanwhile, throughout the time prior to Rowling's trial, he starts talking to the other inmates about himself and making tons of confessions. And he becomes really close pals with this guy, Bobby Lewis, and tells Lewis all about the Gainesville murders in explicit detail. And he admits to His friend Lewis, he's like, I actually decided to kill while I was in prison during the 80s. It was a long time before I came to Gainesville that I decided to do that. I actually have a bad side that I can't always control. And he blames his father's abuse and neglect and the sexual abuse that he says he experienced in prison and his ex-wife, O'Mather. So those are, you know, I don't know about you. I'm just so relieved to find out it wasn't his fault, you know, It's just all all these other people's fault. My god. So, this is so weird, but okay, so Rowling and Lewis buddies. R- Rowling's like, what should I do? And they're like, "Oh, you should fake suicide so you c- so we can stay in the same ward and then you should later escape." So, cool plan. Spoiler alert, does not hold up on January 31st, 1993, Rowling tells the Gainesville investigators that he wants to confess through his friend Bobby Lewis so there's a three hour confession where Rowling does not directly answer any questions but Lewis answers them and then Rowling confirms it and he confesses to all five murders that way Rolling having his best friend do like a weird fucked up dummy ventriloquist act with him in a confession room where he's like, You Sounds do like the an talking acting
0: exercise. It's it really bizarre. does sound like Stanislavski acting exercise.
1: <laughs> it's wild. During the confession, he also says, Oh, and by the way, you know that family of three in Shreveport? I'll explain that too. Once again, he is totally shifting the blame for the murders on this evil side of his personality, which he tells them is called Gemini. The investigators are not into it. What they figure out is that during the week of the Gainesville murders, Rowling watched the movie Exorcist Part 3, and the killer in that movie is known as Gemini and decapitates and disembowels a female victim, So it's a situation where he was like, that's cool. I'm going to take that idea. Three weeks before the trial's scheduled to begin, Rowling asks for a meeting with his attorney and tells his attorney, I want to plead guilty. And his attorney, Rick Parker, is like, if you plead guilty, it's going to be really hard for you to not get the death penalty. And Rowling is like, no. So he's like determined. He wants to plead guilty. And he says part of the reason why is he doesn't want them to show the crime photographs the crime scene photographs at the trial. So apparently now he's like this delicate daisy of a man that could not possibly see the pictures of the acts he committed. Now we go into court on February 15th. It's a pretty closed courtroom. There's not a ton of public or media. The families of the victims are present. But really no one from Rowling family is there, except guess who is there? His dad? Better. His fiance. Her name is Sandra London. Can no. I tell you just a a moment about her?
0: Yeah. Please.
1: I don't like hearing about it, but Wait, yeah. this is but it's crazy. It's so I mean, this story is so fucking bonkers. Okay. Sandra actually has an ex-boyfriend, serial killer GJ Schaefer. So obviously she has a type. She's a true crime writer. And she uses her access to these two men. To talk details about their mental state and details about committing the crimes and then publishes in books the results of what information she gets. Whoa. You have got to Google this person. It's nuts. Sandra London, you are a wackadoo. Okay. So... Oh my God. And I won't get into it because it's too much of a side story, but basically they end up writing a book together that he's then going to benefit from. So there's all these lawsuits because um, there's kind of there's this son of Sam law, which has to do with um, you can't make money off the fact that you committed crimes. So you right. can't write about the fact that you're a serial killer and become a bestseller and have that money go into your pocket. That's not a thing. Anyway, so. In court, the defense is that Danny Rowling suffered mental illness um, at the time of the crimes, and that they were committed under extreme stress, and he had this horrible upbringing, and he had a history of drug and alcohol abuse, and they were like, oh, and also he showed remorse. Claudia, his mom, ends up testifying, and she does paint a picture of what a wacky childhood he had, how horrible Mm -hmm. James was. The jury agrees that as a result of James's abuse, Danny had severe personality disorder and that he actually functioned at the maturity level of a 15-year-old, like he was trapped in time. But they also were like, dude, you don't have multiple personality disorder. That's not... Like, you don't. And you were definitely aware of the criminality of your actions mm-hmm. at the time yeah. of committing them. So they're like, we decide you should get the death penalty on all five counts. Yeah. That's our recommendation. The judge then has to review that and decide what he thinks. Um The judge has to make a judgment. I know that a few episodes ago, dear readers, right. Carrie taught us that investigators investigate.
0: I'm here important. to
1: explain to you that judges make judgments.
0: And if you if you leave here with one piece of information today is that judges are supposed to judge.
1: That's mm-hmm. they got to make that paycheck. So, he confesses finally fully to the triple murder of the Grissom family in Shreveport also at the, while he's fucking awaiting
0: his fate. Um And they know for sure it was him on all of this because he knew details that were not released. Is that correct? It was 100% him, correct? Okay. Not only
1: that, but remember when they took all his shit from his campsite? Yeah. They found some shit.
0: They found, that links okay. links him. So Did they yeah. find the trophies
1: ever? I don't actually know. But the short of it is the judge gives him the death penalty. Yeah. So then he does, like, an appeal. Uh, the U.S. Supreme Court rejects it. And finally, he's executed by lethal injection on October 25th, 2006. You know, you're allowed to make any remarks you sort of want. And he doesn't make any remarks as far as remorse goes or have any messages to the family of his victims who were all there as witnesses. What he does do is sing a song to Sandra, his girlfriend, and he has a visit that day with his brother, Kevin. So they're still, I guess, in touch. His last
0: meal, Carrie. Ugh, i was going to ask but i also like didn't want to humanize him but what is his last meal i'm worried lobster if tail I share- okay butterfly shrimp okay baked potato a eh, boring use of potato but continue strawberry cheesecake okay sweet tea hate which- him i really from the hate South- him so
1: so during the time this is so crazy during the time of his trial and sentencing there's shit about him on television constantly obviously janet fucking frake is home watching the tv and she's like oh shit that's 100 percent the guy that raped me the police don't confirm that till 1996 but it totally adds up to like he was in sarasota at the time they also pull her evidence that cum towel and send it to the fbi for analysis and it fucking confirms it isn't that wow. wild?
0: Wow.
1: The fact that she was not killed is a miracle, truly. And you'll remember she was like, "Do you want a beer while you rape me?" Uh, it was a very strange tactic she employed, but it was smart and it worked.
0: Wow. Holy shit. So that is an insane dark that's story. That's the story, Quinn. but
1: I just want to um can I footnote it with one interesting fact? Absolutely. A man named Kevin Williamson was an aspiring writer in the 90s when the Gainesville Ripper murders uh, sort of catch his attention. And he uses this case to write a screenplay for a movie all about the murders of college students and the media frenzy that ensues because of it. And do you know what that fucking movie is?
0: Wait a minute. Is
1: it Scream? Yes! Scream was written about... The Gainesville Ripper.
0: No. Ugh. Yes. Thank you for telling that story. I hope to never hear it again. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to edit this as well. So I'm going to have to listen to something. You're going to have to hear it one more time. I don't want to. I really don't want to. I'm
1: also going to start over right now
0: and just no. tell it again. Wait, so. I actually have to pee. Can I pee really quick? Yeah, please. Do I have permission? Do it. So similarly, because we have telepathy, um, telepathy, telepathic, tel- we're telepathic, we're, we're telepathic. whatever you get. We're telepathetic. Thank you. Mine also revolves around a movie or it's a documentary. Have you seen the movie Paris is Burning? Mm hmm. It's about drag ball voguing culture. It's an, yeah, I love oh, it. It's an incredible documentary. Agree. Um, And so I found this study from, or this case, mystery, if you will, from that documentary. Dorian Corey, she is a trans woman. She's a drag performer and she's a fashion designer and she's really well-known for the documentary Paris is Burning, as Quinn and I mentioned, we've both seen it. If you have not seen this documentary, I believe it's on Netflix, and it should be necessary viewing. What makes it so poignant is that it was filmed at a time, like the late, late 70s, early 80s, and it dives into the Vogue ball culture, drag culture, the subculture that primarily um, focuses on latinx and black performers in this subculture and it's it's just a beautiful look in time at these people and finding their own communities and it talks about lgbtqia plus issues and it happens at this point in time that's right before the aids epidemic so you see new york in its grungy gritty vibe situation and what's heartbreaking is you find out that all these performers and people that the documentary is following most of them ended up dying from the AIDS epidemic Mm -hmm. which is just it's so I mean I'm I really love RuPaul's Drag Race right and you see the beginning of it in this voguing ball scene culture um and Dorian Corey, the whole time, the whole movie, you see her in front of a mirror and she's putting makeup on and it's beautiful to watch her paint her face, but she's talking about the children because she was a drag mother in the house of Corey. So this documentary talks about these houses, which which are chosen families of trans and gay folks where maybe you would be homeless or disowned by your own family and these drag families would let you in and they would foster you. She, she equates them to street gangs, mm-hmm. they're drag street gangs and how they fight is in these balls where they have um, executive realness or voguing or pass. There's just different categories. It's a fantastic movie. I can't recommend it enough. Dorian Corey is putting on her makeup the whole time and she talks about the difference between a shade and a read. And, you know, like one of her, one of my quotes, and she goes, that's not a read. That's just a fact, right? She's talking about what's shady and who can insult another and why, who's got a good read. It's just all the language that RuPaul has put into the mainstream. You see where it came from and you see us right now borrowing that culture, where it came from, this subculture of these balls. It's incredible. So Dorian Corey is born in 1937 in Buffalo, New York, and she performed in drag. And when she left for New York City is when she transitioned fully. She moved to New York to study design at Parsons. She studied graphic design. And eventually she took that art background and she Made costumes. I read some articles about some costumes where she had a 30 to 40 foot feather cape. And as she was performing, she stripped down to a body stocking. And then they put poles in the feather cape and it became a huge tent that enveloped half the audience. Wow. She's incredible. And in Paris is Burning, she talked about how the fad these days with the labels. She says, you know, these labels mean that you're wealthy, right? And she goes, anyone can steal a label, honey, but not everyone can make this. She is an old school showgirl drag. You know, she has these huge costumes. She's amazing. Um, Beyond fabulous, right? Beyond fabulous. And she's delivering just information about this world because she she's an older drag queen in this world. And so she's seen it all and she's bringing in these new, these new people into her house. It's remarkable. And she talks about these houses and says, you lend money to your friends, not very much money and give advice. Sometimes if someone gets evicted or whatever, you might take them in. So she explained that in a 1991 episode of the Joan River show. So she's talking about these um, chosen families. She held over fifty grand prizes from the voguing balls. She was a diva. She was also a house mother to Angie Extravaganza, who you also meet in Paris is Burning. She ran a clothing label called Corey Design. She was witty. She was realistic. She talks about leaving a mark on the world and how as artists, as people, we want to leave a mark on the world. And all you want is for people to remember your name and that you will know you've made a mark on the world. So I hope wherever she is, she hears us saying her name and she left a damn mark. Um, I don't know if it's for what she wanted, but that's what's happening. Unfortunately, like a lot of the subject in Paris is burning. She contracted HIV AIDS. And she passed away August 29th, 1993. She was 56 years old and she had an apartment in Harlem. Now, after her death, she was cremated and her remains were sent back to Buffalo where they were unclaimed and later disposed of, which is so heartbreaking that no one claimed her ashes and no Mm -hmm. one, you know, that's awful. Her image and her legacy is still well known. So two months after she passed away, some of her drag children were going through her closet. They agreed to go through her closet. She had all these fabrics and clothes and they were looking for Halloween costumes and they were going to sell a part of it for some money. And they're going through and they're searching through. And Lois Taylor is the drag queen that was going through everything. And They were looking in the closet and they saw this like musty green plaid garment bag. And when they tried to lift it, it weighed like 135 pounds. So they couldn't really lift it. So they grabbed the zipper and scissors. And when they opened it, opened the bag, they were hit with this horrible smell. Immediately they called the police. Immediately. Wait, was it the smell of secrets? (laughs) It was the smell of secrets. And death. <laughs> so they called the police. They went through like fabric, and taped wrappings of like vinyl or some fake pleather, plasticky situation, and they find a partially mummified body in the fetal position. Now Ooh. they thought like the they, the skin they said was like purple and yellow. And they also noticed that there were blue and white striped boxers that were tattered and there was a bullet hole in the head. They also found in the bag the detachable pull tabs from like beer cans. And Uh because that design has changed so much over the years, they were able to identify them as from the 60s or 70s, these pull tabs.
1: Okay, so they can sort so of date the murder. They can
0: sort of date. So they found, they they took fingerprints and they discovered that the body belonged to Robert Bobby Worley or Robert Wells, but Bobby Worley. And he has two names. Well, I guess, well, here's why. The only records they have from him was that he was just a bad dude. He was a criminal. He was arrested for raping and assaulting women in 1963. He had served three years in prison. He was estranged from his family, and he hadn't been seen since the mid to late 60s. That, knowing that he had not been located from the mid to late 60s, I mean, he was estranged from his family, so nobody was really looking for him. That, plus the pull tabs being dated from the 60s or 70s, they found out that this body had probably been mummified in Dorian Corey's closet for 15 to 20 years. Wow. So, (laughs) there's a couple of theories of who this person was that they found mummified in her closet. You mean who he was to her? who he was to her or how he ended up there or what happened.
1: Got it. Got it.
0: So one of them was that Bobby was the abusive ex-lover of Corey and that she killed him in either self-defense or they had a romantic quarrel or that because Bobby Worley had a history of burglaries and crime, that it was an attempted burglary that went wrong and Dorian shot him. And then... Because at the time, and even now, as a black drag queen, trans woman, that was so challenging to navigate that time. So- and even
1: now, to be someone uh, in that position and to call the police, you don't know if fucking James Rowling is the police officer and he shows up. <laughs> you, know you know what I mean? I mean? It's uh, They're like, not uh,
0: there for you. They're not there to help exactly. you all the time. And. And part of the Paris is Burning documentary, talk it talks about the police implications and the laws in which they were, you know, breaking that were unjust and unfair, but they had to really protect themselves against that type of scrutiny, and they weren't going to welcome police officers into their home, and then they get charged with something and get put in jail for other reasons, right? So, and as a trans woman who is Black, she did not trust the police, so she hid the body in her closet for 15 to 20 years that was the answer to that riddle right she didn't have anyone protecting her so she had to fucking make make the situation protect herself right yeah so gives a whole new meaning to skeletons
1: in the closet doesn't it
0: totally or i guess just a very literal meaning Right? Well, and she owned, for her protection, she owned a little 22. There also is a theory that she might have been protecting the real murderer. But again, she wouldn't have called the police. So in 1988, she moved apartments 10 blocks away or something. And so there's a theory that she moved into this apartment and found this body and just kept it there or cuz the idea that she moved the body from her old apartment to her new apartment is a little bit a little crazy it's a crazy notion that she was uh-huh. like along with all the things she packed this garment bag and moved apparently there's also and a lot there's a lot of mystery around this because there's just not enough information because the person who is storing the body is dead. And so there's no record, but there is an idea that not an idea. There is a theory that there was a note attached to a body that read this poor man broke into my home and was trying to rob me. But that, you know, and that theory does suggest the probability that she kept the body because as a black drag queen who lived in a poor, dangerous area in the sixties or seventies, there was little chance of gaining sympathy from the police. I think the most common is that they had they were lovers and they had a very turbulent romantic relationship um, that reached the tragic point of Dorian Corey shooting him in the head and then stuffing him in, in a bag surrounded by vinyl and leaving it in her closet for 15 to 20 years that was only found posthumously by Lois Taylor. And that is the story of the mummified corpse... In Dorian Corey's closet. <laughs> go watch Paris is Burning, y'all. Go watch Paris is Burning. Go watch Scream. Go watch Scream because listen,
1: skip Ulrich is so gorgeous. I can't even. Do you remember him? Um The Boyfriend? Well, it's
0: funny you mention him in that right now because I'm currently watching River Riverdale.
1: Uh-huh. I don't Which, know what that is. Way,
0: you don't know what Riverdale is? Uh-uh. Oh my God. You are in 4th Street. Riverdale is like a teen drama and it is so soap opera-y. It is so schmaltzy. It is so... Cr- like it jumps the shark fucking immediately. No. It's insane. And these teenagers have like rum empires and are fucking every episode. It is cuckoo bananas crazy. And Skeet Rick is in it. No. <laughs> playing like a dad though, right? Like he's gotta be old enough now.
1: Is he still like so
0: fine? He apparently just left because he was bored creatively with the role. And I'm like, listen, Home Fry, like this is a teenage drama. I truly was in love with him when that movie came out. Really? I felt scream was hard for me to watch. It was. It was hard to watch. Not only
1: was it so fun for me to watch. But I watched it so many times growing up and I had the soundtrack.
0: You had the soundtrack to scream?
1: I had the C D disc of the soundtrack what to is scream. What's wrong
0: with you? You're such a weirdo.
1: <sighs> I I'm not in gonna apologize. Way, it's a really good in soundtrack. The best way. Um,
0: what's on the soundtrack? I liked see I listen to like up <laughs> soundtrack. That's that a good soundtrack. Right. yeah when Brianna and I
1: watched scream though for the first time we watched it with my mom and after watching it we were so scared that night that my mom was going to try to scare us that we slept together in my room with the door locked because we were just convinced that like my mom was going to go buy that mask that night just to terrorize us
0: she didn't, Quint, to her Do you credit. want to talk about this right now? <laughs> I, mean, this I sounds like some, This sounds like some deep-seated shit. That's terrifying. And you wonder why I am the way I am. <laughs> <laughs> I also, I think we should thank our Patreon subscribers. Oh, you guys. You guys. That love is you so, so much. We love you so
1: much guys, we love doing this podcast. We're gonna keep doing it. We're happy to do it. Um, it brings us such joy, but also we would love to do it and break even on doing it <laughs> instead of pay money to do it. And um, the way to do that is f- well, there's two ways we could do that. We could get enough people that listen that one day we could be talking to you about Simply Safe. But then when you listen to the podcast, <laughs> you'll have to also listen to us talk about Simply Safe. So I think the better way. Is for just, you to become a yeah. Patreon subscriber.
0: No, no, no um, the best way is for all of that to happen. And you know what? Actually, Carrie,
1: <laughs> well, yeah, that would be great. If you don't want to become a Patreon subscriber, just get like ten more people to listen to this show. How about that? That's oh, what you and can here's another do, folks. Thing. Carrie, I was thinking about it, and maybe we could offer something really cool to our Patreon subscribers, like secret. Oh, tell me. Well, I was thinking we could release like a one short episode a month or something like that
0: oh that that's a good idea they,
1: but they only they would have access to
0: that could be we'll have a talk about it and let you guys know and again i just want to say as a psa don't put babies, don't put in, boxes. babies in boxes just I think skip it's important. It. let's leave them with that i think i think there's no other way to but to leave them by the way what's for lunch today when you make it for lunch stop
1: making me make lunch all the time <laughs> I'm not making anything for lunch. If somebody wants lunch, they should make it themselves and fuck them.
0: (laughs) Dear readers, we love you.
1: Don't put a baby in a box.